0: Welcome to the 241st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk about the experience of COVID in the care of pregnant mothers and their children with physician and writer, Javi Eve Karkowski. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live at its new time weekdays at 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Friday episodes will soon be moving to Korea time, and I'll keep you posted about those episodes. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live, Twitter, and Periscope. And you can hear COVID calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Just a quick program note: yesterday was the one-year anniversary episode of COVID calls on March 16th. And I hope you had a chance to tune into the episode. Uh, I took a few minutes to try to relate what this past year of doing COVID calls has meant to me. We had a chance to talk to the production team, Bucky Stanton and Shivani Patel. We had a chance to talk a little bit about social justice and the pandemic with Kristen Arkiza and Felicia Henry. And I also talked with Andy Revkin, Yansil Kang, and Esther Schernack about their experiences through the pandemic. These are all guests that I'd had on in the previous year. And I certainly enjoyed these conversations. It was good to see friends and really, really excellent to hear uh, their perspectives on what it's been like to go through this last year and the work they've been doing. So I hope you'll check it out, episode number 240, the one-year anniversary episode. As of today, March 17th, 2021, there are 2,672,645 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 536,922. In the Philippines, 12,848 have died of COVID-19 and in Malaysia, 1,218. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Today is a news item. The headline is, there were 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents, mostly against women in the past year. This appeared March 17th by Kimi Yam, NBC News. New data has revealed over the past year the number of anti-Asian hate incidents, which can include shunning, slurs, and physical attacks, is greater than previously reported, and a disproportionate number of attacks have been directed at women. Research released by reporting forum Stop AAPI, which stands for Asian American Pacific Islanders, Stop AAPI Hate on Tuesday, Revealed nearly 3,800 incidents were reported over the course of roughly a year during the pandemic. It's a significantly higher number than last year's count of about 2,800 hate incidents nationwide over the span of five months. Women made up a far higher share of the reports at 68% compared to men who made up 29% of respondents. The nonprofit does not report incidents to police. Russell Jung, professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University and the forum's founder, told NBC Asian America that the coalescence of racism and sexism, including the stereotype that Asian women are meek and subservient, likely factors into this disparity. There is an intersectional dynamic going on that others may perceive both Asians and women and Asian women as easier targets, he said. Data, which includes incidents that occurred between March 19th of last year and February 28th of this year, shows that roughly 503 incidents took place in 2021 alone. Verbal harassment and shunning were the most common types of discrimination, making up 68.1% and 20.5% of the reports, respectively. third most common category, physical assault, made up 11.1% of the total incidents. More than a third of incidents occurred at businesses, the primary site of discrimination, while a quarter took place in public streets. According to the data, Asian women report hate incidents 2.3 times more than men. A further examination of the submitted reports showed that in many cases, the verbal harassment that women received reflected the very intersection of racism and sexism. One Chinese-American woman reported that a man on the subway slapped my hands, threatened to throw its lighter at me, then called me an expletive, he then said to get the F out of New York City. Another woman who's Filipino-American reported that while in a Washington DC metro station with her boyfriend, a man shouted an expletive at her, coughed at the couple and physically threatened them. Jung emphasized that women have always dealt with harassment from men and public safety issues more broadly, but the pandemic, he said, has provided another excuse for people to target Asian women. We've noticed that from the very beginning, it's been a real consistent pattern, Jung said. Bullies attack who they think are vulnerable, and we see this in our elderly and youth populations. Jung cautioned against describing the latest numbers as a sudden surge in hate incidents because many of the 2020 incidents were reported retroactively in 2021, according to the report, and there has always been a clear issue of under-reporting in the community. We thought we had a lull or it seemed like there was a lull over the summer but I think people were just reporting less and then it became sort of normalized he explained but now with increased attention I think people are reporting again I think there's been a continued harassment of Asians and now we're continuing to see that reported wave of violence directed at Asian American seniors at the beginning of the year particularly the graphic attacks that have been captured on video have likely prompted more attention from both the community and mainstream media, Zheng said, and it's galvanized a vocal response that's likely led to more reporting. While these attacks on elders have catalyzed calls for action, Zheng made a distinction between this particular violence, most of which has not been found to be explicitly racially motivated, and the racism those in the community have been facing due to the problematic link between the virus and Asian Americans. I think there are separate trends The violence that we're seeing now and the racism we saw last year, but they are related, Jung said. We're really careful to note that this violence against Asian Americans in high crime neighborhoods has always been high. And so the combination of both the racism from last year and crimes against Asian elderly are now significant enough to get national attention. The scholar noted that this doesn't negate the possibility of implicit bias in these attacks on elders, but he cautioned against grouping the two trends as one issue. That's the problem. People conflate it, he said. So decoupling them then helps diagnose different solutions. Karthik Ramakrishnan, founder and director of demographic data and policy research, nonprofit AAPI Data, previously also warned against defaulting to a simplistic understanding of what's going on, adding that the violence cannot be neatly summed up by solely the heightened anti Asian American sentiment witnessed throughout the pandemic. He said a confluence of factors, including the effects of poverty and financial struggle exacerbated by the pandemic, as well as opportunity, could have played into it. There's a complex variety of factors, but the fundamental reality is that there's an increase in the number of Asian Americans who feel unsafe, he said. Such issues have been elevated to the executive branch, as President Joe Biden has addressed the issue of anti-Asian attacks. In addition to referencing the violence in his first national primetime address, Thursday night, he also signed a memorandum earlier this year that in part issued guidance on how the Justice Department should respond to the heightened number of anti-Asian bias incidents. Jung said, addressing the root cause of the violence requires more education or expanded civil rights protections and more restorative justice models. The memorandum, which focuses on hate incidents rather than hate crimes, allows for a more holistic approach to combating racism against Asian Americans in public streets, transit, private businesses, and other settings, he said. If you just narrowly focus on hate crimes, you only address a sliver of the racism that Asian Americans are experiencing, Chung said. Biden's memo that actually addresses hate incidents rather than hate crimes is actually helpful because that gives us the opportunity to frame the issue comprehensively, he said. Okay, I'd like to introduce my guest for today and turn to the conversation. Dr. Javi Eve Karkowski completed her undergraduate degree at Yale University, followed by medical school at Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine in New York City. She finished internship and residency work in obstetrics and gynecology at the Integrated Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, followed by a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine. Dr. Karkowski continues to work as a high-risk obstetrics specialist in New York City where she leads where she leads initiatives in outpatient care during COVID as well as during non-pandemic times. She also writes for the press with publications in Slate, The Atlantic, The Washington Post and elsewhere and her first book, High-Risk: Stories of Pregnancy, Birth and the Unexpected, out with Norton in 2020 was published. Um, was just published, and we're going to talk about that. She lives with her four stir-crazy kids and spouse in New York City. Javi, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today.
1: I'm so happy to be here.
0: So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from, and if it's New York, that's great. Maybe tell us sort of what part of New York and how the pandemic, but also how the vaccination rollout is looking there today.
1: So I am calling from Upper Manhattan, way, way up in Manhattan, what we call upstate Manhattan, but uh, right under Riverdale, and um, I was lucky enough to receive the vaccine a while ago because I'm a front lines worker. Um, in addition to my work with outpatient, I've been working on labor and delivery, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we also took care of any pregnant patient with COVID pneumonia throughout this time period, which meant that I was often running a small COVID OB ICU with my partners. Um, honestly, from my perspective, I'm just waiting very patiently, or very impatiently for my partner to get vaccinated. Um, I feel like he let me live at home all these months, and it was very scary. And he deserves to feel safe. Um, I told him that we could have him start smoking so he would be eligible, and he did not want to take me up on that. <laughs> so so far, he's not eligible yet.
0: It's rare when a physician will will resort to inviting uh, someone to start smoking, but those are the weird times. We these are strange, we live in. strange
1: times. It was, yes.
0: And, you know, your experience of living up in that part of Manhattan, I've spoken to so many guests from different parts of New York, and of course, New York is a a city of many varied experiences. Has there been a sort of neighborhood sense of the pandemic there in terms of um, the way business owners have coped and the way the neighbors have coped, um, pockets of cases? How would you, you know, sort of describe that part of that northern tip of Manhattan, which I can, which I used to live very close in in Inwood, and so I know it pretty well.
1: I live in Northern Manhattan, but I work in the Bronx, which in some uh-huh. ways are very different, but very similar. And I would just say, it can feel palpably that businesses are just hit very, very hard. Um, lots of empty storefronts, um, lots of people sort of doing multiple jobs. Times were not easy before, and they're definitely a little bit harder now. Um, I would say that the pandemic is also really, really present. Rates are relatively high um, in New York City right now. We don't know if it's a new variant or what, but it's, it's still a very present threat.
0: So we were chatting just a, a little bit before we came on about the experience of having a book come out in the middle of the pandemic. And, and you've done that. Uh, I don't know how you find time to do the work you do and also write. Um, and I'm glad you did. This book is titled High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth and the Unexpected came out last year. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the book and also what's been the experience of having a book come out in the middle of a global pandemic?
1: Yeah, this is my book, um, which I, I think is a nice little book. Um, I wrote a lot about the work that I do in high-risk pregnancy, which I think is sort of this mysterious uh, part of medicine that nobody really knows about, not even other doctors. Um, a lot of people just think that pregnancy and birth is really just all sort of joy and ruffles, um, when actually it demands more from from women, but also from families, from also from men, and I think anybody really realizes. Um, and the fact that we don't talk about that has some serious costs, right? Costs in terms of just feeling alone, costs in terms of feeling maybe that things were your fault because you aren't aware of how common they were and costs in terms of policy because a lot of times people making laws aren't really aware of what they're asking. Um, But I'm also really interested in sort of the most medical, sorry, the most American institution of all arguably are sort of behemoth of a medical system, which doesn't make any sense, is immensely powerful and can be dizzying to be a part of. And I don't know if this is true for you, but for many families, the first time they truly enter a medical system is when they're pregnant as a patient, right? If you're young and healthy, it's sort of usually rare to need much more than your pediatrician's office. For many of my patients, their delivery is the first time they've ever been admitted to the hospital. And navigating that system with and for people is a large part of my job, and um, I sort of wanted to talk about what that feels like, what the medical system does for you and to you, and how it both saves you and fails you at the same time.
0: So the, that's, that's amazing, and I hope people will read it. and the And the perspective is is your perspective moving through, and, and then you you know I I'm always sort of curious about how writers um, like yourself talk about medical issues because there's privacy concerns um and as you said you're you're also talking about hospitals and and powerful insurance companies i mean how do you navigate a narrative like that is it mostly expressed as your own sort of first person account how do you talk about these things
1: so a lot of the story is mine and there's definitely a component of memoir to it Um, i've struggled for a long time and i talk about this in the introduction is like what's the ethical thing to do is it ethical to tell these stories that are fundamentally not mine um I really came to a bunch of ways to really protect the privacy of the people that i take care of um, and fundamentally i have come to believe that these stories are really important in the world and they're important to be told um, i would love if the people i took care of would come and tell them themselves i hope they will um, and maybe if i tell them it opens up the door for that as well um, but i did an, sort of any number of things to protect their privacy to the point that not only are they hopefully unrecognizable to other people, I hope they're unrecognizable to themselves as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always curious to ask people, you know, how they see their work before COVID times maybe differently now. Can you talk a little bit about, I don't know if there is such a thing as a day in the life of physician Javi Eve Karkowski, but maybe talk a little bit, if you could, about what that might have been like before the pandemic
1: hit? Um, you know, as a high risk OB specialist, I sort of work in a bunch of different places. That's kind of what's mm. wonderful about my job. On any given day, I might be on labor and delivery, delivering babies or doing surgery. I might be on our inpatient unit, um, seeing some of our highest risk patients, those who either are in preterm labor, have severe preeclampsia. Um, or have something unrelated to the pregnancy, right? a severe cardiac problem that is exacerbated by the demands of pregnancy. Or I might be in our ultrasound unit, um, doing that ultrasound that most of us get at around 20 weeks. right? That's overseen by somebody like me. Um, Fetal diagnosis is the purview of your high-risk obstetrician. Or I might be in clinic, seeing patients with diabetes or heart disease or high blood pressure and helping them get through a pregnancy as healthfully as we can. And in the before times, all those places were places that I were, um, and they are still places that I am, but they are places that I am with a little bit difference. Do you want me to talk about how things have changed?
0: Yeah, I'm sort of just was following up there on that and, and thinking about that, you sort of chasing around to many different places throughout mm-hmm. throughout the day, which also makes for an interesting narrative, I think. Um, but then it becomes complicated you know, as COVID starts to come in, and I'm curious if maybe you could tell us some of the first things you saw, you know, what was your kind of early experience of the pandemic? People in the health system have your antenna up for things that the rest of us mortals don't. I'm sort of curious how you began to see things manifest themselves.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going to be honest, it was a really traumatic and scary time. I'm sure you've heard this a lot. Um, I... I've been very critical of the federal government's response to COVID um, and that's gonna inform some of my response here. Um, I remember early March and I remember mid-March and we knew COVID was coming. We could see it coming, right? There were reports here, there were reports there, a nursing home, I believe in Washington Um, and things just weren't moving. Like I think everybody was waiting for the CDC to just tell us what to do. Everybody was waiting for the government to mobilize massive stocks of PPE and just nothing happened. And I think what what I really remember about those first few weeks was sort of this forced paralysis because we were all waiting for the system to work, right? And the system just wasn't going to work because my understanding and my assessment is that the federal government just didn't anticipate that that was their job of this current administration, not this current administration, that current administration. Um, And so what was really, The pervasive experience was of massive uncertainty and fear. Um, We didn't have enough equipment to protect ourselves. If you're going to keep going to work, are you going to keep going to work? If you're going to keep going to work, do you go home? If you go home, do you come back to work the next day? Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that we were also so stupid in the beginning, right? Like we were told not to wear masks unless we were doing an aerosolizing procedure. And all in one week, my entire outpatient staff just got sick. Boom, all out, done, right? They all recovered, but can you imagine how terrifying that was? Um, And I think that that provoked sort of a series of kind of quick policy changes within hospitals, within city, within state governments that were confusing and often contradicted themselves because we were all trying to figure out what our new role was here. Um, My mom heard how scared I was I managed to find me some N95s from a Jewish organization in China. I still do not know how those got to me. yeah, I, and I wore the same N95s for probably three weeks. Um, and mostly it was just very, very scary. I want to also point out, I work in a field where most of my partners are women, right? Many of my partners are young women with young children. Um, and many of them really made the decision to move out of their houses because their spouse was high risk or because their child is cared for by their parent who is over 70, Um, And they separated from young children, sometimes nursing infants, for it was unclear how long it was going to be so that they could provide care for their patients. And I think this is one of the stories that I hear about, but not maybe enough about. And then there's me who talked a lot about moving out of my house. And my husband ultimately told me that he didn't want me to. And I feel like he let me live at home during that whole time. And that whole time he has stayed healthy. So...
0: I'm just putting up on screen here a link to the Washington Post piece that you published in the summer, actually, and the headline of that piece was the child care crisis punishes women in health without schools. They'll quit, which taps into um, by summertime, I guess you you were um, new enough or were enraged enough or maybe both to um, take up the keyboard and, and write that. It's a tremendous Opinion, and it comes to us a bit as a time capsule right now because it's one of those pieces that was really anticipating what's going to happen in September um, when kids can't go back to school. But but you're telling an earlier part of that story, even in those early weeks, and it's really important to underline, um, you know, the the composition of the teams you're talking about, predominantly women who are having to make these impossible choices. And I don't even know. Uh, maybe you could say a little bit more about how those discussions even even work. I mean, are these hallway conversations among medical professionals asking each other what to do? Where do you look for guidance? A lot of us, like
1: lot like lot of us were saying, hey, are you moving out? Is there a hotel you're going to? Um, is there one near the hospital? I have to admit that also, I think we none of us saw how long this would take, right? I have right. a lot of friends who moved out and then ultimately had to move back in because their families just could not survive that long without them. Um, so there was, I think, a lot of sort of uncertainty There was a lot of unclarity about what kind of resources we had available to us. In the middle of all this, um, we sort of, as a department, changed our schedule. We split up into teams to both um, reduce the amount of sort of cross infection we would have between teams and to create a situation where if people did get sick, we would still be able to staff essential services. You know, the thing about the work I do is that a lot of departments can shut off elective surgeries or they can shut down most of their outpatient care. But everything in pregnancy is time sensitive. I can't tell people to come back in three months, right? So both our labor and delivery unit had to stay open, not just for healthy people, but also for COVID infected people. And I couldn't shut off my outpatient clinics because people still need prenatal care. And so we had teams that were doing inpatient care for two weeks and then would switch to outpatient care. And We were trying to really minimize um, how much you were sort of, We were pods we were trying to pod with each other and keep each other healthy and make sure that if somebody did get sick we could sort of seamlessly make sure that the whole thing still kept running still felt safe and might even still feel safe for our patients Mm -hmm. um, during a really scary time to have a baby
0: so uh, just to emphasize this this point that you know um, elective surgeries and regular medical visits and dental visits the people, I stopped, people stopped doing that. We didn't even think about that. I think in those, in those early months, I mean, we got those um, calls from our various you know, medical offices that said, we'll reschedule you when we can. But as you just said, prenatal care and labor and delivery, um, particularly in the sub you know, area that you focus in, the high risk pregnancies, you can't just put those off and say, come back to us when the, when the pandemic is over. I have so many questions about this, but I wanna start with this one about history what are the medical models, what do you know from sort of past pandemics? What were you relying on to know about how safe that could be? What kind of protocols you needed to adopt? Uh, as a person who's not a physician, I have been throughout this past year, constantly sort of in my mind, I'm like, oh, there's definitely a protocol for this or that or the other thing. And one of the things we learned throughout COVID is there's a lot of improvisation that experts have to uh, in, you know, do in the moment. And then that becomes the policy until the next improvisation, which is a little unnerving to me, frankly, but it also gives me a lot of sort of confidence in people like you who who have that talent and knowledge. So what did you have to rely on, I guess, to get started with those kinds of improvisations?
1: So there's a lot of improv here, right? Because there's the stuff that we're talking about that's like patient management, like a patient comes in who's sick with a novel coronavirus in pregnancy. What evidence-based medicine do you practice when your evidence is literally... At that point, I remember we had one paper. It was a series of seven patients out of Wuhan, China. You know, how many life-threatening decisions are you willing to base on one paper with seven women out of Wuhan, China, right? That's, so that's one thing. Um, and that improvisation was, we were really at the front lines. We really were the first big wave in the US. We had a little bit of knowledge from Italy, but really we were on our own. Um, And a lot of what we did in terms of just patient care was a lot of trial and error and a lot of let's try something it didn't work. You have to remember that, and we'll talk about this later, anything that you try in pregnant women is always a little bit of a double jeopardy situation. Um, They're almost always excluded from clinical trials and we can talk about how ethical that is, Um, but it meant that we were often really left without much guidance. And I have to tell you, one of the things I really was so proud of is that people were simultaneously working really hard, being really scared, And collecting data at the same time, right? Because when you went home from your day on your COVID OB ward, what did you need to do? You needed to make sure that you and the person from down the block and the other hospital from the area in Westchester got all your data together because you needed to publish it as soon as you could so that people would have guidance. I just feel like that's really beautiful. So that's the patient care aspect, right? But then there's the like systems aspect. And this is something I spend a lot of my work day on, which is how do I put hands on patients and how do I make sure they're cared for without getting them sick and without Mm -hmm. getting us sick? Um, And I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people about how medicine has changed, um, particularly the reliance of telemedicine. Mm -hmm. We had not really been doing a lot of telemedicine before this. Mm -hmm. We did not. We were not a medical institution and prenatal care in general is not It's not a place that people really like to do like breaking news kind of things. People like to do the prenatal care that they did that works. Um, And I feel like we really innovated and came together on a prenatal care protocol that I have to admit changes every three weeks as I get more data, but went live within two and a half weeks to three weeks of the pandemic being called and ultimately was a safe way to provide care um, for our patients and really reduce the burden of risk that they were taking on themselves to come and see us at the
0: office. Was that capacity already sort of there, and waiting and you just hadn't moved to it because of the culture of the practice that you're in, or you had to literally also sort of build the digital systems um, to do the telemedicine?
1: I would say that most institutions right at that moment who had not who had not had a huge investment in telemedicine overnight developed a huge interest um, and were building them immediately. Um, the other thing is, I don't know if you realize this, a lot of the barriers to these things are legal. So a lot of it was about privacy, what platforms can you use, what's HIPAA compliant, and sort of overnight, as this pandemic broke over us, a lot of the regulatory boards made decisions that made things just a lot easier. Um, can you use FaceTime to talk to a patient? Guess yet today you can. Um, well, now that's a way to do telemedicine that everybody has. Well, we have to make sure because not everybody has it, right? We have to assess those assumptions. But it really can give you tools that maybe you didn't think of using in medicine, but now they're available to you. Um, so I think some of it was like many other things, more regulatory and standardization than, you know, we, we've had video calls for a long time. It took a lot, a big push to get past the medical, legal privacy concerns. But with that push, we did a big jump.
0: I can only imagine what some of those conversations must have been like in terms of the patient privacy and the, and the medical legal stuff. I, I, I'm sure it's really complicated. Maybe you can give me some of the headlines of how that even works. I mean, there must be, you know, a compliance office and the hospital and a risk management group and various different groups.
1: A and you're doing, stuff,
0: doing these meetings at the end of the day after taking care of patients all day. How does that even take place?
1: I mean, I feel like for for me, what I always spent a lot of time trying to figure out what, and you sort of have to deconstruct, like in my job, what do I need? What do I really truly need to to take care of a patient, right? And the answer was that actually what I need is a blood pressure. I need a fetal heart rate. And that's most of what I need. And I need to be able to talk to her, okay? And it turns out that you can get a blood pressure cuff at home. You can get a blood pressure cuff of of Amazon for $25. You couldn't in March because everybody had the same idea at the same time. But you technically can. I wanted most of my patients to have a pulse oximeter, too, because COVID was so common that I just wanted them to have it at home. Right. Um, A scale is a great idea, but you can have that at home, right? You can step on the scale, read me the number. I can put it in my chart. And then we had a lot of discussions, for example, do we need to listen to the fetal heartbeat? Um, Or is it enough for me to say to somebody, is the baby moving? Is that enough? Um, And I would tell you that medically, if a baby's moving, that's a better indicator of fetal well-being than a heartbeat. I will also tell you that many women really, really missed coming to the office and hearing the baby's heartbeat. So there's the way that we deconstruct the visit to what do we really need to get done. There are ways that we also worked with each other, right? So we have ultrasounds throughout pregnancy that might happen. Well, what if at your ultrasound, you get your blood pressure done? Then you go home and I can do your visit from there. And so you came in for one thing, the ultrasound, which I really can't do from afar. I really have not figured that out. Um, But three days later, I can do your visit because I know you had a reliable blood pressure weight and pulse ox taken when I had hands on you. And now you just took the bus one time and you're safe at home. And we got a lot done for you. And now you probably don't need to see me for another three weeks because of that, which is great.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with physician and writer Javi Eve Karkowski, who's the author of the book High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected, and we're talking about high-risk pregnancy, labor and delivery in COVID times. And you mentioned this a couple of times, so let's follow up with it. The patient experience, which um, I have uh, two children and went through this process, and I know that the, um, first of all, the unknowns, are real for patients. And those trips to see the doctor are um, sustaining. And as you say, you know, the ultrasound and the various different rituals that go with that, the sharing of pictures, the calling of family to encourage them, to let them know the whole, it's people haven't been through it. um, You know, what I would say about it is um, the labor and delivery is one small part of it, but it's an a, a year-long you know process before through and after of needing mental health support. And so I, I wonder if you could address how you how you even thought about that. I know you're, you know, you're the medical specialist, but it's it's the body and it's also the mind.
1: Well one of the things I say a lot is that what I love about my job is that we are the one place in the clinic and the hospital that you're having a life cycle event, right? Nobody's like super excited to come in for their appendectomy or their MRI, but most people are really excited to come see me. And so I have always this sort of double responsibility, right? I want it to be safe and that's not a non-trivial job. I want it to be helpful. I want to come out of this with a healthy mom and a healthy baby, but ideally I would also like it to be a non-traumatic, a good experience, maybe one that you guys talk about, this is the beginning of your family, right? This is your origin story as a family. Um, A lot of the hospitals during COVID did do things that impacted that experience. Like many of the hospitals in New York did say you can no longer have a support person in labor. And that was very, very painful and, and cruel. My hospital actually never did that. Which was itself a lesson in economics as patients streamed (laughs) from other hospitals with more restrictive rules. Um, and I think what was so hard about that was that it was provoked so much anger, right? Patients were like so scared and so angry because they couldn't have one familiar face with them, and that's completely legitimate. And I think this is what happens when there's scarcity, right? We were, it's like they're mad at the doctors, and the doctors are feeling poorly used by them, but really it's a it comes from a scarcity that was avoidable. It was because there weren't enough masks for us to offer patients and their partners and our doctors. And because there were a couple of experiences in several major academic institutions where partners did not disclose COVID symptoms so they could stay for labor and exposed a whole floor, Mm -hmm. including newborns, right? So you can see how in that setting, um, with the real fear that you might not be able to keep your institution running, you might just shut it down but I can also see that that is cruel and unusual and not sustainable for a family. So that's one example of how COVID really, I think, stole from many people something that they needed. Um, And I think that was quickly reversed, at least in New York, Um, the governor made it obligatory to allow partners or a support person. Um, But I think it's a really potent example of how how shut down we became.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the the mental health impact on your teams and on frontline workers. It's This has been a strange disaster in that usually in disasters we see rubble victims are, you know, ever present in, in front of cameras, sometimes unfortunately in exploitative ways, but we get those narratives. COVID has been so strange, particularly in those first few months, because we really, most people just didn't know what was happening behind the hospital doors. We didn't hear about the toll on healthcare workers because they were too busy to talk to the press or the press didn't ask. It was months before I had any healthcare workers on COVID calls. Maybe you could share just some of those experiences that you see as sort of illustrative of that time.
1: Um, it was very dark, it was a dark, dark time. Um, you know, I walked into work past a giant refrigerator truck for corpses because we had exceeded our morgue capacity. I walked into work past a giant tent for COVID triage because we had exceeded our emergency room capacity. I would have pregnant patients in the ICU and my pregnant patients are going to be, generally speaking, relatively young and healthy um, and it would not be infrequent for me to have the patient next door be intubated, be coded, be gone. Um, we also had a lot of, we had a lot of really scary things happen. Women come in, women come in who came in bleeding with a placental abruption, which is when a placenta separates from the uterine wall who needed an emergency C-section. We run them to the OR, right? We don't stop and ask questions. We, we take care of them. And, And more than once afterwards, we discovered that they were COVID positive. We would have taken care of them anyway, of course, but we didn't have the proper gear back then. You know, we only put it on for somebody we knew was COVID positive. So now I've just exposed four anesthesiologists, six OBGYNs, five pediatricians, you know? Um, It was just a situation that was so difficult. Um, I think it also created a really strange ethic of work, if I can talk about that. So I've always been a very hands-on physician. You know, whenever I disagree with somebody, I always find that the best way to resolve the disagreement of a patient said, let's go see the patient together, right? Because then I I think showing up is a large part of medicine. Um, And I remember in early COVID, I went to the hospital and I was doing my shift and there was a COVID pneumonia patient that was admitted. And the doctor that had admitted her came to see me and tell me all about her. And after that, I said, okay, let's go see her together. And you could tell that I had not been on inpatient for a week. You could tell because things had gotten so dark in that week. And she said to me, Dr. K, I just saw her. And I said, right. And now I'm the attending and I will go see her. And she said, Dr. K, we have two infection control gowns left until the morning. I just saw her. I just told you about her. I think that has to be good enough for today. So I didn't go into that room. I called the patient on the phone. I talked to her about her care plan. I made myself available, but we both know that's not the same, right? Um, And those are choices that we had to make.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And it circles back to something you said earlier about the, um, the failure of the federal government to have the stockpile ready of HHS and then FEMA to deliver PPE or um, the various other technologies that were that were needed um, in the day-to-day life and death of what you're describing there, um, you somehow also made time to be articulate about that. And I wonder how how you felt about that as well. I, I, I feel like they're in different professions and I'm not sure how it is exactly in yours. There's a, a bit of an inhibition about speaking out. Um, you know, Police and fire and doctors, in my experience, they go through a lot and they sort of talk to each other about it and they keep it to themselves. They don't like to go to the press and say, hey, we need attention over here. It seems to be part of the culture that, that you're in, but we've needed that. We've needed people to step up and say, hey, this isn't right. I wonder how you thought about that, how you made those tough decisions to be really a, a sort of spokesperson in that time.
1: I, I think that this is the way that I say that um, no matter how much I have doubted that I'm a writer, it turns out that I seem to be one.
0: Um, <laughs> because
1: it seems to be that when I see something interesting or do something interesting, um, that's what happens. Yeah, well but said. It, yeah, but I will I will say, I mean, I, it doesn't mean I'm a great writer or a good writer, but it means that I will at some point write it. Um, What I will say is that primarily for about the first six to eight months of this, most of what I felt was just rage, so angry, so angry that I was put in this position, every little bit of it felt completely avoidable with better leadership, so angry that I was forced to make these choices, so angry that I was forced to make choices that impacted the people I love, right? I'm going to go to work because I have a job to do that shouldn't cost my husband his life. That's not the deal we made, right? It shouldn't cost my kids their father. That's not the deal any of us. And it hasn't. And I now I feel like it sounds melodramatic, but at that time that felt like it was a real possibility. And to be honest, it kind of still does, right? And so mostly I was just so angry and I found that I couldn't work if I was so angry, right? You cannot work in a society and for society if all you want to do is yell. And mm-hmm. so I just had to stop thinking about it for a while. I stopped thinking about it and talking about it for about four months, I would say, from probably April to July. And then in July we had an easing. By then I hadn't admitted a very sick COVID patient for a couple of weeks and we sort of were able to take a dip, deep breath. And I think that's when I was able to start really writing a little bit more.
0: I just want to follow up on that. And this is a pretty naive question. I hope you'll tolerate it. But I wonder, I mean, at some point in medical school um, do, is there a moment where they say this job is dangerous and and you should take that into account? Because I, I feel like, you know, doctors and school teachers, particularly and medical staff, allied health professionals have been asked to do these kinds of things, which you just described, make life, death decisions, on behalf of their own families and neighbors and extended families, is that in the training somehow, somewhere in your medical education?
1: I mean, so no. And I I don't think it should be, right? Like we should take good care of our people. You know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be a police officer or a firefighter or a doctor or a school teacher, the thing you want to hear is not, this is a really dangerous job. Hope you're okay with that. The thing you want to hear is, Parts of this can be dangerous. Here's how you're going to be supported. Here's the equipment you need to minimize your risk. Here is the training so that if this happens, you know what to do. The truth is of all those professions, I am very, very rarely in any sort of line of fire. Um, uh, There are often lives at stake there almost never mine. right? This is a new situation for me. Um, And I have to admit that I am proud because I did not, run away to my mother's basement and hide for the duration of the pandemic. Um, I'm glad I did that, didn't that. did do that. I'm proud that I kept showing up to, to work. I'm proud of the care I provided. Um, I, I don't know if, if that's what you are going to ask of your health professionals, you are going to have a shortage of health professionals very, very soon.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking with Javi Eve Karkowski today about her work in the front lines as a doctor in COVID, and also um, as an author talking about um, high-risk pregnancy. I wanna turn to another aspect of your writing. You published a piece, really great piece in the Atlantic um, in late summer, and the the title of that piece is what we've stolen from our Our kids. And I'm gonna just read a couple sentences from it so people can get a sense of, of what you were writing about there. You write, among the things we've given up to this pandemic, it's become clear, are our children's external worlds and some of their mental health, and much of their joy. We gave that all up, often without noticing. And now we have to live with that until we make it right again. So in addition to the many hats you wear, you're also a mother of four. And so their life experience is obviously your responsibility. And you got really concerned about schools. I wonder if you could talk more about that, the reaction to that piece. And and that was, again, one of those summertime pieces. And I wonder how, you know, looking back now, how some of those issues resolved themselves in your mind, or have they not?
1: My experience with that piece was that my kids in the late spring when COVID was just starting were pretty resilient, right? Like they got taken out of school pretty fast. They were doing Zoom school. Um, for anyone who has young kids, you know, it just doesn't work. All of that was pre-K, first grade. All of that is social. They're not going to sit in front of a screen. And if they do, it's just not doing what you want. Um, my kids did okay. They did okay for a few weeks. Um, I mean, we were so locked down and we live in an apartment that they only went outside for like the 20 to 30 minutes a day that we could spare to take them out together, right? Like really just a very sort of sad little life. And they were really resilient for a lot of that. And then as it dragged on and on, I just found that they were getting more emotionally brittle. They were having trouble sleeping. I was having to buy melatonin to get my kids to sleep. And that I wasn't the only one like this. And what I have come to understand is that I think we think of school as something optional, right? Our kids can go. And if they miss a year, they'll go next year. But that's not what school is for your kid. School is their whole external life. School is everything they are and they know outside of you outside of their family, outside of who they are at home. And they're building that identity. It's also the academics that they're learning. For some kids, it's also a hot meal and a warm place to be in the winter. Um, But for most kids, whatever else it is, it is their external life. And I think that the choices we made as a country um, told children that that wasn't very important that we could just do without it for some period of time. And I think we wildly underestimated how it would affect millions and millions of children and how I think it will affect them through their childhoods and often into their adult lives. And I think it's part of a mythology that we like to tell ourselves about how we care the most about our children, they're the most important, but actually that's not at all how we behaved and it so often isn't.
0: Do you find fault with decisions about keeping schools closed in the fall or how did you sort of process those decisions? Because as we talked about earlier, um, in the pinch moments, um, in the hospitals, it was the healthcare workers who had to bear that risk of insufficient staffing and insufficient technology and PPE. And I think it's teachers that were asked to bear that risk. And, in my, one of my sisters is a teacher and, um, Uh, her husband's a teacher. This has been painful for them to feel like they were, you know, somehow withholding the thing that they love most that they do for so little money
1: anyway. I want to go back to this idea of that scarcity pits people who should be allies against each other. It pitted the doctors against the patients when really the problem was that we didn't have PPE, right? It's pitting parents against teachers when really the problem is, is that, you know what, as soon as this happened, I was like, We need a new deal. Let's take over the airports, every single restaurant and make them into open air classrooms. You could fit like all the sixth grades of New York City on LaGuardia. Let's do it. I'm not saying these are great plans. That's not my job. My point is, is that you could think big. You could make this a first priority and you would have had a solution and you would have had an outdoor solution. You would have had gear and you could have had people feel as safe as possible. None of that is what happened. Okay, I'm not saying that it would have been perfect, but I'm saying that there was nobody willing to think those big thoughts and bring those big resources to bear. And when you have that scarcity, right, when you have that scarcity, then I, as a parent and fighting with teachers, when what we both want is actually the same thing is a false conflict. Um, In the same way that when patients are fighting with doctors, when we both want is care for both care for the patient where we all feel safe. And usually that comes from scarcity. That scarcity needs to be addressed for us to be able to move forward. So I think there was scarcity, there was scarcity of safe risk mitigating schooling. I think it was possible. I think it would have had to be revolutionarily revolutionary. It would have had to be large. It would have probably been quite ugly. And I think our children deserved it.
0: Thank you for talking about this because um, I've had mixed feelings about this too. And I think others may share this, that you know, when the Trump administration decided it would become a talking point for the fall campaign, that kids need to be back in school. I felt like that was in bad faith because once again, they weren't addressing any of those scarcity issues. They were saying teachers unions are keeping your kids um, from going to school. And I'd heard similar rhetoric about nurses and doctors in the summer. You know, it's doctors are the ones that, I mean, he, he would complain about Dr. Fauci for crying out loud. Dr. Fauci is keeping you from living the life you want to you want to live. But I felt like that raised the temperature of that conversation in the fall to an unsustainable level. And then it got lost in the politics of that moment. I wonder what you think about that.
1: I mean, I feel like this is where I learned from history, right? This is where you learn from history. Like if you make people choose between women's suffrage and um, black civil rights, then everyone loses, right? Because you created a false idea that only one group can win and then they fight each other, and then the person who wins is like the white supremacist because that will for longer. That's what it felt like to me, is like if we all really as a nation decided that our children were important, then this looks different. Can you imagine if the children had what the police force had? Can you imagine if the children had a fraction of what the military had had? Can you think of what we could have done with that? I'm not this person, I'm not the ops person for the military, but I've seen some of the things we did look what we did with the vaccine. And I think other things could have reflected that. I don't think the priorities, we like to talk about how children are important, but we really need to look at how a nation acts. And I do think over the past year, we have not acted that way. And I don't think it's because teachers and parents need to fight more. I think that we are fighting over this tiny little piece of the pie when we should have been given this huge piece of the pie, because if children truly are the most important, then that's how much we deserve.
0: Javi, you are one of the most quotable guests I have ever had on COVID calls. <laughs> I have to say, you speak in—I mean—scarcity pits people who should be uh, allies. I didn't even curse yet. I well, we'll even leave, yet. We'll make time for that. Well, maybe you'll be ready to now because let's talk um, about vaccination. You—you uh-huh. kind of headlined this a little bit earlier. You previewed this a little bit earlier. And we talked about the problem of um, knowledge about the people you treat, people with high-risk pregnancies, and how to deal with um, disease, with infectious disease. What about this vaccination issue? You know, vaccine trials are not typically done on pregnant mothers. What has that meant in terms of COVID?
1: So, I actually think there's been some evolution on this with my sort of national um, organizations. But let's just take you back. In the world that I practice in, where I take care of primarily pregnant women or people planning to be pregnant or people recently pregnant, um, I often have very little data. On recent things. So, for example, the medications I use for high blood pressure are really old. Sometimes they're really toxic. Do you know why I use them? I don't use them because they're the best medications. I use them because you cannot do studies on pregnant women very easily. And so, those studies I have are registries where you follow people who report use over 20, 30, 40 years. And the most studies like that I have are on old medications. And then a new medicine is invented, and I won't have any data on that. So, I can't use that for a very long time. And so, because we're trying to protect my pregnant women, which I, which I share this desire not to make guinea pigs of pregnant women, but then we end up in a situation where in some ways my patients are receiving discriminatory care, right? They don't have access to medications or even information about medications that they otherwise would have. had. So now let's take the vaccine. The vaccine trials initially made the choice to exclude pregnant women. I don't truly fault them on that because I feel like this was sort of going to be, let's make it quick, let's make it fast. Millions of people are waiting, let's go. I get that. Um, But let's also talk about what that costs, right? Because here's the thing. You don't do the trials on the pregnant ladies, great. And now the vaccine comes out. And so we can just tell pregnant women they can't have the vaccine, right? We can pretend that's the safest option and that's what in the past we've done. We said, pregnant lady, it's too scary for you to take the vaccine. You and your little baby are at risk. You can't have this new medicine. You can't have this new therapy. But what does that mean? It means that every day that she's pregnant, she's at risk for COVID. And what we do know about COVID, what's become very clear about COVID, is that pregnant women get much sicker Mm -hmm. and they are easily more easily infected, right? So what we've taken is a situation where her risk, her daily risk from COVID is higher. Her daily risk of severe morbidity and complications is higher, and yet I've denied her sort of any information about this vaccine and what it might be for her baby. And so we didn't do the studies on it, but as soon as it came out, many, many pregnant women took the vaccine. So was it better for them to take it without a trial, or should pregnant women have been involved in the trial from the beginning?
0: And, and so who answers that question? I mean, and, and is it possible to do sort of um, retroactive studies with populations who self-identify as having had the vaccine, and then you gather that data and you sort of work backwards
1: from that? So I will say this. First of all, um, from the very beginning, because this vaccine, although novel, is very similar to many other vaccines we've given, which we do have sort of an- analogies to use. Um, We were able to participate in what we call shared decision-making, right? I'm not going to tell you what to do, but let me bring you all the information. And a lot of my colleagues came together and made some really beautiful decision tools to use with patients, which I really found very useful. Um, Ultimately, what it has come to for me is if you are somebody who can really be home and on lockdown and mitigate your risk from COVID, you're just not going to get it, then maybe not taking the vaccine is the right thing to do. But especially in the beginning, you have to remember the first month or two of COVID vaccinations, we were only offering it to healthcare providers. So if you're a pregnant healthcare provider, you are not going to be somebody whose risk is mitigated. You're somebody who's at very high risk. What I do feel has evolved is that um, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is sort of the institution that makes policy for OBGYNs in the U.S., they didn't say what they have, what sort of historically has been said, which is, you know, there's no data in pregnant women. Pregnant women shouldn't take it until there's data. That's historically what's often been said. What they said was that vaccine should not be withheld from pregnant and lactating women. Do you hear the difference? There's still no data, right? They're still not going to tell you to take it and they're right. They shouldn't tell you to take it. But what they're saying is when you withhold it from pregnant women, that's not right either. And so that is an evolution. We've gotten a little bit somewhere. There has been, um, Interim observational data that the CDC just published on pregnant women who took the vaccine, which is a fair number of women, um, and they showed no increase in adverse events in terms of pregnant issues. What I didn't see, what I did really want to see was whether it's as efficacious. The immune system in pregnancy mm. is different mm-hmm. um, and that you just never know. Um, so that's something I was hoping to see soon. Um, and there are ongoing clinical trials with pregnant women going on right now.
0: And, and so that language that you quoted, that it should not be withheld, that once again um, seems like it brings the physician right into the center of the discussion. Is that right? I mean, so you're giving the, you're the point of, of advice at that point. I mean, you would be anyway, but it, it seems like it puts extra emphasis I, I, on your decision-making.
1: I feel like for this, I actually just wasn't just a resource for, for my patients. This was the kind of thing that people reached out to me from friends, friends of family, um, yeah. because the vaccine was this milestone we all wanted to reach and then to be pregnant during COVID is so terrifying do you take the vaccine do you not take the vaccine it was such a hard thing to navigate Um, I feel really grateful I got to navigate that with a lot of people Um, and I never tell anyone what to do although I think you can hear that I have a strong bias towards vaccination in general Um, and I hope that I gave people the tools they needed to make the decision that was right for them
0: we're almost up on time in the COVID calls here with Javi Eve Karkowski today. I have one last question I've been asking every doctor I spoke to about this. How do you think medical education is going to change now whenever this pandemic? I don't know how it's going to end, really, but what are you looking for in terms of changes for med students?
1: My med students were just gone for a long time and now they're back, which is nice. Um Honestly, for me, a lot of what COVID has taught us is that it has just revealed the cracks in the American medical system. They are just lit up. We can see them. The discrepancies, the difficulty navigating systems, the ways that jumping from inpatient to outpatient is just much more difficult than it needs to be. And the way that all of that sort of became a huge problem during COVID. So medical students, this is what I want you to look at. Let's fix it.
0: I think it comes back to something you were saying a minute ago that um, if I was a medical student right now, I would have on the one hand the emotion that wow, my work really matters in the world. I mean, more than I even thought it did. And on the other hand, what if I'm asked to do things that are really scary or that I shouldn't be asked to do? I, I, you must be being asked those questions by by students as well. Is this really worth it?
1: Well, I will tell you this was true truth. Medical students before COVID, um, working in medicine is complicated, and you are often Ethically in a quandary as you should be. Um, what I think has been really interesting is, in the beginning, we thought of our medical students as trainees, and they did not come to the hospital. But then, as it goes on, right? Then we're no longer saying, "Oh, this is just a brief period of time." No, this is—they're going to lose their medical education. They won't get to be doctors, and they're back. And now they're not trainees; they're professionals in training. It's different. They're allowed to be exposed to danger even before the vaccine, so they're back. Um, I don't know what, whether, I don't think they were compelled. The medical students I work with were just thrilled to be back doing the work, trying to be as useful and learn as much as they could.
0: Well, I want to thank you for your time today, Javi. This has been a really tremendous conversation and Twitter has kind of lit up with uh, comments that that underline that. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, I'll be talking with Ashton Verdery from Penn State about the COVID grief multiplier and the research that he and his team have done about the sort of rippling effects of COVID and mental health. And I want to make sure you know that my guest uh, today, Javi Eve Karkowski, is the author of a tremendous new book, High Risk Stories of Pregnancy, Birth, and the Unexpected. And I hope everybody will get that. And just thank you for your time today, Javi, and for your sort of really great insights and um, taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it.
1: It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 530.